Ian, you're rubbish. You're a total fraud. You don't even know what you're talking about, and no one is listening to your podcast. Uh, what's that voice? You know me. I'm your inner critic. My inner critic? Are you telling me it's normal to have voices in your head? Oh yes, perfectly normal. But I don't believe you. On today's podcast, my special guest is Claire Yosa, and she's talking all about how to stop your inner critic from running your live streams. What a load of rubbish. Not true. But do you know what is? You are. And I'm going to press that red button over there. Oh no, please don't. No! Time to get on with today's podcast. This is the Confident Live Marketing Podcast. Confident Live Marketing Podcast with Ian Anderson Gray, helping entrepreneurs level up their impact, authority, and profits through the power of live video. Gain confidence in front of the camera, confidence with technology, and confidence with the content and marketing. Together, we can go live! Hello, it's Ian Anderson Gray here for episode 11 of the Confident Live Marketing Podcast. I'm really excited because today we have another special guest, which is Claire Josa, and we're going to be talking about how to stop your inner critic from running your live streams. Do you struggle with that inner critic. I'm sure you're one of many who does. I certainly do. So if you want to find out more about this, if you want to see the show notes, you need to go to just iag.me forward slash 11. That's iag.me forward slash 11 because this is episode 11. So today's podcast, as always, is sponsored by my friends at Content 10X. Content 10X are experts in content repurposing. They provide a full end-to-end repurposing service. So you just need to go live, share your knowledge and your expertise, and then they will take that, they will repurpose that into a plethora of content across the interwebs. That could be a podcast, a blog post, social media posts, saving you time and building your business. They also have an awesome blog and podcast packed with great advice and all things repurposing. So all you need to do is just go to content10x.com. And I thank Amy so much and the rest of the team at Content10x for sponsoring this podcast. So I've got Claire Josa here today, who is my guest, talking about how to stop your inner critic from running your live streams. So Claire knows what it's like when that little voice inside your head gets in the way, like deleting the manuscript for a book the night before it was due at the printer. More about that in a minute. But she also knows how incredible it feels when you get that message out there without those secret 3am fears, so you can make an even bigger difference in the world. She has spent the past 15 years specialising in helping high achievers and business leaders do exactly that. And in this interview, she's going to be sharing how to spot your early warning signs that negative self-talk might trash your live stream dreams. That's a bit tricky to say. And how to press pause and turn things around in under 60 seconds. So Claire, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. It's really exciting. Now, if you are just joined watching us live, obviously this is not going to affect the podcast, but unfortunately we haven't got Claire's video here. You can just, you'll just have to stare at her photo, but it's great that you're here audibly. So um, that's great. 
It's fantastic. And as we were just discussing, when we realized that the Skype gremlins were going to get in our way, when you're looking at the role that your inner critic, that negative self-talk plays in going live, we both had a choice in that moment, Ian, didn't we? Is, oh, we could just let this completely trash the interview or we could just take a deep breath and say, you know what? It is how it is. We can't change it. Leave those stories behind. Let's just make this brilliant anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is one of the things I've learned with live video, particularly live video, that the tech, no matter how much you put into it, that the tech gremlins sometimes creep in there. I mean, in a previous episode, I shared how to create your own live video checklist. And that certainly helps if you go through all those steps. But even still, you've got to be prepared for things going wrong. And at the end of the day, you know, it, we might not have video, but we've got your audio and we're going to have a great time today talking about this such an important topic. So I, I was trying to remember just before we, we started when we first met and you reminded me. Mm, yeah, it was at the first Youpreneur Summit and you and I masterminded together. I know that was, I mean, how long ago was that now? It's, it's getting it's towards... Years now. <laughs> yeah, it's like two and a half years, but it feels like we've known each other longer than that, which is... It which does. Is, yeah, that's kind of the way, the way it works, I think. So yeah, so it, this was a mastermind session at Chris Ducker's Youpreneur Summit, which is in London. It's, it's a year, it's, it's every year in London. And we were on a mastermind and uh, yeah, we just, I think all of us in that table, table we really clicked and we, we got awesome. it on, we, we really solved a lot of, not necessarily the world's problems, but certainly mm. our problems in business. In fact, Amy from Content 10X was on our table too. There she was, wasn't she? Yes, she was. <laughs> That's so funny. So yes. <laughs> That's so funny. So yeah, the sponsor of our podcast was on there and, and your, your guest on the show. So that's, that's great. So tell us a little bit about yourself for, for people who haven't, don't know you, because you've, you've, you've had a kind of varied career, haven't you? You've, you've done quite a few things over the end. What, what has led you to what you're doing today? Well, I definitely confuse career advisors at schools. They don't invite me in for the bring your parent to school evenings. <laughs> so I started out in mechanical engineering. So I've got a master's in mech engine German because I wanted to know how car engines worked. And I picked a university that didn't actually cover any automotive engineering. So I had to go and study in Germany to learn that bit. And I came back and spent 10 years specializing in diesel engine manufacture, in lean manufacturing and Six Sigma, which you'll have heard about from this whole just-in-time manufacturing thing that was going on with regards to no-deal Brexit and how the manufacturers weren't going to be able to get their parts in in time. So I worked on that, but I also specialized in looking at when a process broke down and you had quality issues and how you could achieve a permanent fix. It was about designing in quality so you can't get it wrong in manufacture. And there came a point where I realized actually what gave me a buzz was making people smile. So my nickname in the factory was Smiler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so I started, I'd always had a passion, passion for psychology and I actually started studying it properly. I ended up going traveling for a year. I came back as head of market research at Dyson. So I set up their market research function because when I'd been in engineering, I used to run what we called guerrilla market research. And we would do things like go and just book a hotel in somewhere in Germany, for example, and get 300 car owners in and talk to them about what they loved and what they hated because the market research team would do that, but they couldn't translate what that then meant for the engineers. So I'd started this guerrilla market research where we would realize, okay, so when they're saying that they don't like the drive feel, what they actually mean is that they want us to change the fuel injection pump torque curve. Yeah, and it's not reasonable to expect a market researcher to know that. So that got me passionate about why people make the choices they do. 
I qualified, got the job at Dyson, set up the market research there, including things like the ball vac and the hand dryer I was working on and um, the USA launch. And then there came a point where I realized I couldn't make a big enough difference in the world in somebody else's business. So in 2003, fully qualified and experienced, I set up my own business and I've been running it ever since. And frankly, in Brian Clark's terms, I am unemployable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think many of us could say the same. You know, I've, I've kind of wondered a few times about getting a, a so-called proper job. And then I thought, thought about it for a couple of seconds. I thought, you know what? No, I love what I do too much. And I wouldn't, I, I don't think they'd employ me. So, uh, yeah. I don't think they'd have me either. So, and back in 2003, I was very much in the management, in the consulting, um, leadership development, one-to-one mentoring, running training courses. When the kids came along, a lot of my work went online and international because when you're juggling three children, you can't always show up for a five-day training course in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. And now the kids are older, it's back much more to the corporate world. So I've worked a lot with entrepreneurs in the meantime. And over the last couple of years, it's been shifting much more into that leadership development. And my big passion now in the corporate world is a project called Leading from Your Heart in a Head-Based World. I love that. Do you know what? Just listening to you, we could, there are so many different kinds of podcast interviews we could have. You know, just the fact that, you know, your engineering background, I mean, some of the stuff you talk about fuel injection, and that's not kind of what I think a lot of people would expect to be spoken about on this Confident Live Marketing podcast. But, you know, your engineering background is actually, is another reason why I'm so excited to have you on, because so much of the talk about psychology or the inner critic or imposter syndrome, anything like that, tends to veer over into, I, I hate to use the word pseudoscience or woo-woo, mm. and it ends up being, you know, we've got a head and we've got a heart. And actually, I think yeah. you're able to bring both of those things together in this conversation, which is great. I just want to bring in a few, a few comments from people. Tish was saying we're definitely our own worst critic. And she also says, this was earlier, she says, I have issues with myself. Long story, but all things in baby steps. It can be, if need be, at first audio, which is what I did with Eileen Smith in StreamYard. Yeah, well, that's what we're doing. We're doing in audio. And Bonnie Frank says, this is a great interview. I love hearing about her journey. And she also says, yes, we are all unemployable. So there we go. We're not, not alone. So yeah, so that's that's so fascinating, What your your story. And I, I just wanted to, I ask all my guests this, when you've, done, you've gone live, haven't you, before? You've done live video. Do you oh, yeah. still get nervous? Well, do you know what? I'm a bit of a back-to-front girl. So I much prefer live to pre-recorded. So yesterday I was back recording my podcast episodes for while I'm away. I'm taking the whole month of August off, which is utterly terrifying. <laughs> Sounds quite fun and, too, but yes. <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. It's that letting go of control for four yeah. weeks. So I was back recording for August and I um and I uh and I hesitate. You give me a live audience and it's like we co-create. There's something about having people joining you live that makes that whole, because it is a co-creation, it makes it so much easier for me, but I appreciate that's not normal. So I get nerves when it's just me and the microphone. Yeah, that, I think that's really important. And I think actually for, for those of you listening and watching, you know, if you get nervous at the moment doing live video, I think the more you do it, the less nervous you become and the more confident you will become. And actually you will get to the point, like with, with what Claire is saying, that you will be far 
you'll find it far easier to do live video because it doesn't have to be perfect. It's much more natural doing it that way because there is this expectation in our minds, and maybe we can talk about this with the whole inner critic thing, that it kind of somehow needs to be perfect when actually what the world wants is more authenticity and more vulnerability. So we're, we're talking about the inner critic today, but so this might seem a bit of a, a simple question, but I wanted to just make sure we're all on the same page here. What is, how would you define this inner critic, this kind of inner voice, or is this kind of, some people call it a negative voice, this, mm. what, how would you describe it? And, and also the follow-up question from that is, how does it, or why does it harm us? Okay. So it's, it's actually a really good question to ask. I've just been finishing off Ditching Imposter Syndrome, my new book, and it's actually one of the things I've had to add because I hadn't realized not everybody would know what it was. So your inner critic is the internal commentary. That inner critic might be, as you walk around, it might be saying, oh, they're wearing brown shoes. Oh, there's, there's sun in the sky over there. Gosh, that's a big dip in the pavement. So there's a bit of you that's just running this commentary. And over time, these thoughts in the head, they become habits. So we pick our favorite thoughts, the ones that we love to feed. And those neural pathways, it's as though, if you imagine walking through a field and it's probably June time, so the grass is sometimes getting up to about waist height if you're my height. Yeah. And if you just walk that field once, by the next day, the grass will have popped back up and nobody will see you were there. If you were size 15 wellies on a muddy day and you stomp your way up and down that path 50 times, it starts to become a motorway. That path doesn't disappear. It's the same with our thoughts. So where your thoughts, this commentary, turns into an inner critic is with the habitual thoughts we think. They become like autopilots in the brain, those great big motorways instead of that grassy field. So somebody presses a button or there's a trigger and suddenly your brain fires off the whole set of stories that go with that. And this is how we train the inner critic. It's the stories that we choose to feed. Yeah. But not everybody thinks in words. A lot of people think in pictures mm. and some people think in physical sensations. Those who struggle most with their inner critic are the ones who actually hear it as a voice in their head. And you often find it's got the tone of voice of somebody from their past. That's interesting. So I was going to ask you just where does this inner critic come from? You know, because often well, I think, would you say all the time, it, it's usually, a, it's a lie. It's not the truth. So where does it come from? And well, yeah, just answer that before we go on to the next bit. Yeah, because <laughs> I've got so many questions. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time researching this and actually trying to find that exact answer. And the conclusions I've drawn are it comes from early childhood when we start cognitive thinking. Because when you're a tiny kid, I don't know if you've noticed with your own, they can have the most enormous tantrum and 60 seconds later, they're absolutely fine. You're a quivering wreck in the corner <laughs> saying, where's the red wine, please? <laughs> they just bounce straight through it. They don't hold on to this stuff. As you start to evaluate the world and realize that you're separate to your parents, sort of around the age of seven, eight, nine, this is where the inner critic can really start to form. And it's also a point in our childhood where we start to be compared by our teachers to our colleagues. So what we're learning is the absolute seed of the inner critic, which is judgment. It's that cognitive thinking combined with judging. So the difference here between evaluating, you, know, you might walk into a room and think, gosh, the temperature is really high. You evaluate that. I feel hot. Yeah. Judging it is it's not fair. It's too hot. 
Yeah. When we're talking about ourselves, we can evaluate our own performance where we're talking about our skills and capabilities. So, for example, I helped out at my son's play the other week and they wrote me in to do the makeup because I'm a girl and they thought I could. And I really realized that was not one of my skills. So I had an evaluative discussion in my head, looking at what the other mums were doing. How quickly can I learn how to do posh makeup for the stage? What I could have done is taken that to the judgment level, which is where you take the behavioral discussion in your head and you make it personal. So I could have been standing there going, oh, I'm just no good at this. Why did they even ask me? I'm such a failure. Yeah, that is the realm of the inner critic. So when we're talking about that internal dialogue, there's a difference between our skills, behaviors, capabilities. And when we take that and make it personal, when we put an I am judgment statement in there and that's where the problems come in with the inner critic really fascinating yeah no i i trained as a singer as you know and i i've taught singing and i i find a lot of the time the big problem with people singing uh, in, in when i'm teaching them is they immediately stop when they've done something wrong and they beat themselves up they say oh that was awful that was rubbish and I kind of have to say to them, well, look, who's the teacher here? <laughs> you know, you're, you're actually being so negative. So what I try to do, and I, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts on this are, is the first thing that you have to say once you've, you've finished something is to think of something positive, be constructive first, mm. and then look at, well, what, how can you improve that, you know, from a constructive point of view? Because I think if we were to treat our clients the way we treat ourselves, oh, we'd yes. be sacked in no time, wouldn't we? Mm. If we treated our children the way we right. treat ourselves, they would be in care. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they would be. They would be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to ask you from a scientific point of view, from a chemical or biological point of mm. view, you know, is, is something actually physically happening in our brains? Yeah. Is that something you've looked into? It absolutely is. So... Firstly, on what you're suggesting, it's a really good antidote. So you're, you're asking people to celebrate their micro wins. Look at the tiny things that did go well. And then when you want to look at what could I change to make it even better, the key there is to use and and not but, because the brain is trained if it hears the word but, then everything before it was a lie. Yes. Yeah. And that's key on self-talk. So what happens when you have a, say you get stuck in what I call a, a mind story drama, and I'm not saying that judgmentally because I have soap operas in my own head too. You get stuck in that drama, which means you've had a single thought that's triggered us telling a story about some, to ourselves about something else that might have been related. You know, So somebody says something that annoys us. Oh, he always does that. It's not fair. I can't stand it when he behaves that way. And suddenly we're in this deep emotion. So your emotions are chemical reactions in your body. They feel a lot more real than that, but that is all an emotion is. When I was very first learning to become a meditation teacher, I nearly punched a Buddhist monk. <laughs> <laughs> not, not good. Not good. I did stop myself because he said that any emotion left to its own devices will pass through in under 60 seconds. So, of course... Back in those days, I was not quite as chilled out as I am now, though my husband might disagree on the chilled out stuff. And I wanted to defend my right to feel grumpy or angry or frustrated or fed up. And I didn't want to accept that actually the only reason that emotion keeps going is because the thought triggers the emotions through what's called the autonomic nervous system. That's the bit that makes your heart beat and your hair grow. And then the emotion kicks off. That feeds the thoughts that then triggers the stories that feed the emotions. So that cycle goes on. And you feel those emotions in your body. 
So when you're thinking that drama story or a mind story fear of what might go wrong, when we do that whole what if thing, you know, if I go live, what if nobody shows up? What if the tech doesn't work? What if I forget what I wanted to say? Yeah, those will trigger the fear response in the body, the fight, flight, freeze. That triggers biochemical reactions that release, if this is too technical for people, just ignore the words, get the feeling of it, yeah? It triggers the cortisol and the adrenaline, the stress response. What that does is it says, okay, every threat, whether imagined or physical, is treated as though it's a saber-toothed tiger outside of the entrance to your cave. It diverts the blood flow from the bit of your brain that's really good at coming up with answers when Ian asks questions. It diverts the blood flow from non-essential processes like digestion and cellular level regeneration, and it gets you ready to fight or to run. When that happens, it's diverting the blood flow to the primal part of your brain that cares about one thing only, which is survival. And suddenly, a little bit of self-talk about, I'm going to go and do a live stream, becomes, what if I die doing a live stream? Yeah, your body fires off the same chemical reactions as though that tiger were actually gently knocking at the door. It makes it really hard to think straight. You will find tension in the body. As a yoga teacher, I know that the spinal fluid that goes up and down your spine, if the body is tense, particularly the shoulders, which do tense up in the jaw when the fight, flight, freeze kicks in, it stops that whole spinal fluid flowing properly. And that is what brings the, the fuel to your brain so you can't think again there. And suddenly you're in this vicious circle of physical tension, emotional stress and stories, and that just keeps you stuck in that cycle. Well, that is absolutely <laughs> fab. I mean, I, I've always said this podcast was was not going to be woo-woo or pseudoscience. We're we were going to base it on as much fact as possible. And I think you've certainly <laughs> delivered on that, Claire. So thank you so much. That's really fascinating. I th think it's really important to know that what is actually happening. And I hadn't really ever thought about it being, you know, the fear that we have as being almost like going back to that survival instinct. Mm. And uh, you know, It's exactly the same process in the body, mm. whether it's what I call it legitimate fear, which is you're walking along a cliff path and it's really windy. Mm. Or mind story fear, which is where we're telling ourselves a story about something that might happen and might go wrong. Okay. So there's, there, there are different types of fear. Is that what you're saying? Mm. Yeah. Those are the two main categories. The legitimate fear, always listen, take action, stay safe. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. crossing the road. The mind story fear has almost never got any substance in reality. Yeah, that makes sense. We've got some great comments here, so I'll just bring some of those on. So from Lorna Ferguson, who says, I'm a really experienced public speaker, but I have resisted live video. I am easing myself in by doing really short, spontaneous Facebook Lives. Not giving myself time to think about it for a long time helps me with the inhibition. That's really interesting, so not giving yourself time. I think certain things like doing Instagram stories, those, those short ones, but or go live just to yourself is are really good. But I think a lot of what you're going to be saying, Claire, is going to help with this. Okay. Getting rid of those that that inner critic, that inner like conversation that we're having. Virginia Crawford says, "I worry terribly about how I look and sound," and I think that that is such a common issue. I struggle with this too, and and I think I've because of my training as a singer, I was forced 
to listen to recordings of me sing. And for <laughs> ages and ages, I hated it because oh. I didn't, we're not used to hearing our own voice. So when you actually hear it, you think, well, I, I sound completely different. And, and you end up having that kind of inner conversation, that inner negative conversation. Bonnie Frank says, and I love this. So he, she says, no one will care as much about that as you. They're listening for the content, which is so, so important. This is it. So, I mean, my biggest, biggest piece of advice with regards to your inner critic, if you just take one thing from this episode, is make it about your audience. Because when you flip it and you stop thinking, what will they think about me? And you think, how do I want to make them feel by the end of this life? It totally shifts that inner dialogue and it gets you out of your own way. That's so, so true. And it's something that I'm still learning. You know, we we end up making it all about ourselves. We worry mm. about what people think. You know, mm. I, I could have worried at the beginning that, oh, well, Claire's video's not here. It's not going to work properly. People are going to think this is awful. But thankfully, I think I've come a long way, which is really encouraging. I, I've come to the point of actually writing down in a journal, you know, what I've learned and, and actually writing down the positive stuff, the things that I know to be true about myself and reading that, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Because otherwise, it's very easy to listen to that inner critic. So loads more to talk about. So when our, when we press that go live button, we've got the tech sorted as much as we can. We kind of know vaguely what we're going to talk about, hopefully, because we've planned it all. We press that go live button, our mind goes blank. We forget <laughs> what to say. And then we start going, um, uh, um, uh. you know, uh, why, why does that happen? And how do we solve that, that problem? Because this is a big worry. For this is where because you're stressed, the blood flow has been diverted from the bit of your brain that knows what you wanted to say. Because frankly, you're not going to go into negotiation with the saber-toothed tiger. That's just simply not going to work. So when you've hit that stress trigger, which is a fear and stress have the same response in the body, then you don't have access to the frontal cortex of your brain that does the brilliant thinking that comes up with those sassy answers to questions. You are stuck in the primal part of the brain that's like, I don't care about the live stream. I've got a tiger to deal with. Yeah, so you actually have made it physically difficult to think straight. So I've got coping mechanisms I use in case that ever comes in, which is I have square notes that are about kind of three inches by three inches. And I write on those the one or two things I want to make sure I communicated during that live stream. So if I get stuck, I can actually say to my audience, you know what? My mind has just gone blank. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm just going to look. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend it's perfect. I'm just going to, ah, oh, that's what I wanted to say. Yeah. So a real common mistake that I've made myself in the past is trying to teach too much in one live stream. There's a difference between a live stream and a webinar. When you've got that clarity and focus, and you think this is the one point I want to get across. I'm going to use this story to teach it. And this is the one action I want people to take. And you write those three things down it's so much easier to have a live stream that flows, that feels conversational. That's such a good point. And, and I think actually sometimes writing down the first thing that you're going to say, because sometimes mm -hmm. that comes out of my mind. I mean, I know what I, I, I knew it like, like two seconds before I pressed the go live button. So actually having that there. The, the other thing that strikes me is I, thinking back to my performance days, when I made a mistake, you know, when I was a child and I made a mistake, I would make a big deal about it. I'd go, oh, no, I've made a mistake. And I'd make a big deal about it. I was very self-conscious. And then I think as I trained as a professional, I learned that, you know, everyone makes mistakes. And the best thing is just to appear confident, just carry on, breathe, 
and yeah. and not worry about it. And actually, the, the fact of the matter is most people will not even realize that you made a mistake or that you have to look at your notes or whatever. So I, I think, again, we, we kind of become self-obsessed, don't we, with these things? Absolutely. I'm really glad you've mentioned the word breathe, Ian, because that's actually the most important mm. thing you can do. Obviously, you can't go live if you're not breathing. You will have other priorities. <laughs> <laughs> when fear strikes... What's happened, there's a bit of you called the sympathetic nervous system that's kicked off. That does the whole stress response, the cortisol, the fight, flight, freeze. It's a big topic. So I'll just leave it there. The best way to reset that, this is something I learned in my yoga meditation teacher training, is breathing, is belly breathing. So if something goes wrong and you feel that stress starting to well up, it's just, just give me a minute, breathe in through the nose. <sighs> Breathe out through the mouth with a sigh and imagine you can physically see those stress hormones flowing out through your feet into the earth. Okay, so that's the bit my clients called engineer approved woo woo. So I'm glad you mentioned the woo woo. <laughs> I love that engineer approved. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so that breathing in through the nose, breathing out through the mouth and imagining you're sending that stress and that worry into the earth is called a grounding breath. When we're stressed and we can't think straight, we're stuck in our heads. That gets you back in your body. It rebalances the nervous system and it gets the stress hormones standing down. So it redirects the blood flow back to the bit of the brain that you want. And you'll suddenly find that you're vaguely intelligent again. Being vaguely intelligent is always an advantage in doing a live stream, I think. <laughs> we talked about uh, breath control and how to breathe mm. using your, your diaphragm, using belly breathing a couple of episodes ago. So mm. if you, if you, I can't remember exactly which episode it is, but you can find it just by going to iag.me forward slash podcast. And, you know, I, I learned this at, uh, when I was training to be a singer. It was kind of the, the posture is all to do with looking like a, it's the noble position. So actually making sure you're breathing into your lungs, breathe, using your, your diaphragm. And, and it makes such a difference in terms of your your voice and getting rid of any tension. But I hadn't realized so much about it relaxing or, or making a difference in terms of your nerves and yeah. that side of things. So it, it's all yeah. kind of interlinked, isn't it? Absolutely. It resets the stress response. Mm. The other thing that you can do as you're doing that belly breathing is you can imagine that every time you breathe in, you're breathing in genuine confidence. And every time you breathe out, you're letting go of any fear or worries. So you can use the power of visualization with that breath to actually build up your confidence. And it's, it's really interesting because the noble position you're describing comes from the world of yoga. It's actually Tadasan, which is the mountain pose with that strength and groundedness of a mountain. Interesting. I didn't know that. So yeah, I've, I've heard of it from the Italian bel canto school, which was kind yeah. of in the 18th century. But mm. it, again, it shows you how they're all interlinked. So it's right. in yoga, it's in, and I think there's a lot of similarities with Pilates and stuff like mm. that. So fascinating stuff. Uh, Bonnie Frank says, this is this is amazing to hear about the emotions truly being nothing more by themselves than a chemical reaction in the body. So uh, yeah, yeah, I totally appreciate they feel like a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah they do. They're very, very powerful. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to talk about fear, uh, because I hear a lot of people giving conflicting advice there or, or talking about fear in different ways. We hear people talking about fear is your friend or you need to dance with fear. I've I've certainly had the experience when I've gone to perform on stage and when I've been nervous and scared, it's been more of a, like a controlled nervous energy that my adrenaline's pumped through my veins and I've given some of my best performances. But sometimes it's been uncontrolled and that's been my worst. So do you, should you feel the fear, destroy it, block no, it, dance with it? What, what should you do? It, none of it, none of it, none of yeah. it. So what you're describing for your performance, this is fabulous stuff. Mm. So 
there are two types of stress. Stress and fear, we'll just use the same words for now because it's the same reaction in the body. Yeah. You've got distress, which is where things have gone out of control. You've really triggered the fear response. And you've got something called eustress, EU stress, not European Union, EU as in the ancient word for good. So it's good stress and distress. Eustress is what people want when they say, oh, I don't want to be fearless because then I just won't bother performing. You want eustress, you want that excitement adrenaline rather than the fear adrenaline. So they're different. So it's absolutely okay to feel that sense of excitement adrenaline. When you get into distress, that's when you've lost the flow to the frontal cortex of the brain. You've got the whole body going on with the stress response. I do not recommend people feeling the fear and pushing on through because what you're then doing is you're forcing in addition to stress and that actually makes the stress response worse. When you do that on a regular basis, which a lot of people do, they push on through or they push the emotions down and they force themselves to go through, you're actually fighting with yourself. So you're actually going to war with yourself on top of stress, on top of fear. The likelihood of giving your best performance is really low. It can trigger anxiety, depression, mental health issues, performance issues, relationship issues, anger issues, physical health issues. What I'd much rather do is say, well, how about we spend 60 seconds clearing that fear and you do it inspired instead of doing it scared. I love that. So do you, do you think it's a matter of semantics here that we're using the word fear when actually we should be using a like a different word? Like, would you call that excitement or, you know, because a lot of people talking about feeling the fear, but maybe mm -hmm. it's, it's a case of talking about being excited or there's a different word there. This is why I think the work that was done, it was done in Hungary, actually, on you stress is so important, mm. is to accept that actually when you've got that buzz, yeah, when, when I was co-leading the EU VAT action campaign to get EU VAT law changed, the first live interview I did for the campaign was four weeks after I'd heard about the whole thing. My husband is my accountant, and it's a family joke that I'm allergic to accounting. <laughs> so here I am on Radio 4 News, live, head-to-head -head, with the head of HMRC, the tax authority in the UK, arguing about EU VAT, something I'd heard about four weeks ago that he had lived and breathed his entire career. And as I sat there behind the microphone, I had that choice. I felt the fear coming up, and I knew I had the choice. If I did it scared, I could potentially cause millions of people to lose their business. So there was no pressure on. And I consciously breathed out the fear and allowed the excitement to come up. And that gave me an interview where by the end of it, every argument he'd raised, I'd managed to give a calm counter argument to. And the effect of that interview was HMRC was actually going to make us all have to register for VAT in order to do EU VAT. By the end of that interview, they'd agreed they wouldn't. Now that's not because I'm brilliant, that's because I didn't let fear get in the way and I made the most of you stress, which helps give you clearer thinking, helps you come up with inspired answers in a way that being totally laid back and chilled out wouldn't. That's brilliant. So so you stress is the word we should be using. That's the positive thing. It's mm. it's not embracing the fear but mm. letting the eustress, that, that excitement, rise up in us. Exactly. And, and there are techniques you can use when I work with clients. There's a technique you can use with your finger to actually move from fear to excited anticipation. And it takes it's a, a difference of two inches in the body. <laughs> wow, that's exciting. So how, how would that work? So you think about, if you're going to do something, you think about, okay, you, you allow yourself just to tell a tiny bit of the fear story. And you just ask yourself, close your eyes, where in my body do I feel this? 
and you put your finger on that point, it's not rational, it's not logical, except it is because actually any chemical reaction from fear produces tension in the body. So you're actually pointing to that point of tension. And you shake that off and you think about something that you feel happy anticipation about because you don't want bouncing off the walls excited. You want that sense of you stress, that kind of, this is a little bit scary, but actually it's going to be fab. Where in my body do I feel that? Put your finger there. The difference is normally a couple of inches. It's normally in the belly. So the next time you're feeling scared about something like that, you put your finger on the fear point, you drag it gently to the excitement point, and it resets the nervous system. And you get that excitement and you can anchor it in. Fascinating. It's one of those things that sounds really weird. And I've, I think, you know, I would probably like almost like a little bit resist to begin with. Yeah. But I've had so many experiences when I've actually done things that seem really weird and strange and they've worked. And mm. there is definite science behind what you're talking about there. I think that makes total sense doing that. So thank you for sharing that with us. So we're going to go live. What are the techniques that you would share with us that we should do? We've, we've talked about breath control. What mm. should we be doing in our minds before we press that button and then we're actually going live? What would you say to us? So I would tell you to completely ignore the mind because when you've got stuck mm. in that mind story fear and it's triggering all the other stories and examples of every time you've ever messed anything up in your entire life, yeah? So you've got this massive stress response running. Pressing pause on that inner critic, I will share the technique for that before we finish, but it's actually quite hard to do it in the middle of that major stress. So I would go back to the body because the thoughts, the emotions, the body, physical sensations, they are all inextricably linked. Yeah, if you're telling yourself a story of I'm exhausted, the body gives you exhausted. Yeah. So I, before I go live, particularly if it's a biggie, I would actually get back into my body. So I would do three deep sighing breaths in through the nose and that one out through the mouth. So that gets me back in and present and out of my stress head. And then I would imagine I'm taking an enormous breath in of gentle confidence. And as I breathe out, letting go of any stress and worry, whatever resources I feel I need emotionally to do that live stream, I breathe them into my body. So what you're doing is influencing the nervous system to say, give me the biochemical reactions for confident. Give me the biochemical reactions for clear thinking. And by using the breath, you are energizing yourself. You will automatically, if you're belly breathing like you taught on the previous episode, you will automatically improve the posture to be one that's more confident. So you're actually using the body. Then when you check back in with your thoughts, you'll find they've slowed down and they've changed. That's fascinating. It's just the kind of stuff that we need to get into a consistent way of thinking and, and doing. It's, it's more to do with the doing, really, isn't it? Beforehand, yeah. you know. We've got a couple of fab comments here. So I totally empathize with the, these two comments. So I have to bring them in. So Lorna Ferguson says, this is why I love public speaking on stage. It gives me eustress <laughs> rather than de-stress. Yeah. The excitement charges me and I know I can think on my feet and express things I never knew I was capable of. I just need to learn to apply that to video. And I totally agree with you. I still, to this day, I wouldn't say I prefer speaking on stage. I love live video too, but I do find speaking on stage easier because you can bounce off the energy in mm -hmm. the room. And then Virginia says, because with video, you don't have an actual audience sitting in front of you to react to, feed off, see how they're reacting to what you're saying. That's how I feel. And again, I, I totally empathize with that. It feels like at the moment, if we just think, visualize this. Okay. I'm upstairs in my office 
standing in front of my webcam and computer, speaking. <laughs> and if somebody came in the room, they'd think, what on earth are you doing in? You're a nutter. You know, there's no one else here. And and I can't even see you, Claire. I mean, you yeah, might be no. you might be picking your nose. You might be grimacing at me. <laughs> and the audience out there, they're thinking, oh, Ian's boring. Come on. You know, so we. whereas if I'm speaking on stage, I can see everyone. I can bounce off the energy of the room. Have you got any thoughts on, on that? Well, I've actually been listening to how you've been running this live stream. And I think it's a beautiful example of how to get engagement and how to create that feedback. Because I, I actually prefer being on a real stage, because if you're heading in the wrong direction, you get very immediate feedback. From yes, your you do. You can do something about it. And there is this then this energy bouncing. You're co-creating with the energy of the room, whereas with a live stream, it's almost all your energy. But I've loved what you've been doing about bringing in the comments, asking people specific questions to answer, actually using people's names. That kind of thing can help to build that energy. If I know it's going to be a small group, I won't do a live stream. I'll do a Zoom call so I can see people's faces. That's a, that's a good tip. But also I find that, uh, and this is hard, at the beginning when I first did live video, I wasn't getting many people watching mm. live. Sometimes I got zero. and But I still did it because I was doing mm. it for consistency. Mm -hmm. I was doing it because I was going to turn this into a podcast. And I and I and it didn't matter that there was zero. It, it kind of did matter, but I mm. chose not to let it matter. Yeah, actually, it's, it, it does go back to that point about flipping it to be about your audience because I'm sure you find this too, Ian. It's the people who experience the biggest transformations when you do a live stream. What I would call the lurkers who yes. don't actually interact, yes. and they might watch it on the replay, and suddenly three weeks later you'll get an email saying, "I watched that live stream you did," and. So we need to stop judging ourselves by the metrics of who watches so it. So true. Yeah. And look at the effect and impact it has for people. I'm so, so glad you said that. It's so important because you're right. The people who come up to me and say, hey, I saw your live stream last week. It was really, really good. And I think, really? Well, you never commented. You were never there. And, and How dare you not tell me when I was live? <laughs> you know, so I, I think that's such an important thing. Now, we could go on for a lot longer than this. I'm just aware of time. We're definitely going to have you back on the show. We're going to, there's so much more to talk about. But we talked about some quick fixes in terms of the longer term strategy of turning your inner critic into what you, these are the words you used, into your biggest cheerleader. Mm. What, what, what's the long term strategy? Well, firstly, on a quick fix, I promised everybody my ABC technique. Okay. Which oh, is sorry. Yes, really, we, we need yeah, to do the quick fix, don't we? It's yes. really, really quick. Um, so <laughs> on that, accept, breathe, choose. Okay. Accept, breathe, choose. So you notice, normally you'll notice through attention in the body that you've had an inner critic type thought. Just accept it because if you fight it and try and push it away, which is what most people do, is I'm going to do this despite my inner critic, then you're actually setting up a war. And as Carl Jung said, what you resist persists. So you end up fighting it and giving it all of your power. So you accept that was an inner critic thought. The breathing is that breathe in through the nose, breathe out through your feet and let it go. The reason that's so important is it resets the nervous system and it calms and tames the inner critic. So when the body calms down, the thoughts calm down. And the C is choose. Choose a thought to celebrate. It's that simple. If you do that every time you spot yourself having an inner critic thought, accept, breathe, choose to consciously think a thought that's maybe a gratitude thought or a celebrating thought about, okay, I hear the inner critic story. And in yesterday's meeting, I did this specific thing really well. What you're actually doing is rewiring your neurology so that the motorway in your brain no longer goes from trigger to negative and it goes from trigger to neutral 
to allow you to then go to positive. Love that. Right, I'm, I'm going to have to go back to the, the recording and play that over and remember to do that every time. That's brilliant. Thank you. Cool. So, <laughs> so for the longer term yeah. fixes, I work with people on, because the inner critic is the surface level symptom of what's running at a much deeper level. So actually to deal with inner critic, you need to go a bit beyond mindset work. Positive thinking doesn't work so well because then what you're trying to do is ice over a burnt cake. Yeah, it's still going to be a bit icky underneath. So I actually work with people at a few levels down. Okay, so who are you? What sort of stories are you telling yourself about yourself at an identity level? What's important to you? What are the beliefs that that is then creating? And it's all of that together that creates our set point stories for the inner critic. So I work with people at two levels. So, for example, I'm running a mastermind in October on this to tame your inner critic. So we will start with the emergency quick fixes because you need to be able to press pause. Then we'll go the layers below and look at understanding your early warning signs, looking at which beliefs do you need to clear out so that that particular subset of inner critic stories becomes irrelevant. And how do you need to shift the way that you're seeing yourself? And one of the biggest things I work with people on when we're in workshops, it's why I love workshops and one-to-one, is we get to work on things like judging yourself, beating yourself up, comparisonitis, clearing out the triggers for that. And then there are so many fewer conversations for your inner critic to have. Wow. That's fabulous stuff. So yeah, it's the, those are really big issues, you know, working out who we are, get, you know, looking back at the what maybe has caused these issues. So really, we, we if we have these inner, this inner voice, the inner critic, there are some quick fixes, which are great. And thank mm-hmm. you so much for sharing those. And I'll definitely be implementing those. Uh, but yeah, we should also be looking at the long term strategy and, you know, working at that. So thank you for that, Claire. How do people find out more about you and how can people find about, uh, out about this mastermind and all the workshops okay. you do? Where's the best place to go? Okay. Uh, in general, it's clayosa.com. If you want to find out about how to really tame your inner critic, and we do it, believe me, we do it in a way that's fun. Just like you and I have laughed today, Ian, I promise you, I'd much rather laugh my way to enlightenment than cry my way there, you know? <laughs> um, you can go to clayosa.com forward slash inner critic. That's where to apply to join the mastermind in October. It runs once a year. And if you've got what I would call your inner critic's big brother, which is imposter syndrome, the whole who am I to do that, which I think is what you and I are going to talk about in the autumn. I've got a whole website for you called ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com. Who suffers from imposter syndrome here, I wonder? (laughs) So, yeah, that's what got me deleting the manuscript for Dare to Dream Bigger the night before it went to print. You need to kind of just quickly share that story with us because I've, I've heard the story before, but it, it is quite a an extreme story. It was. So I spent a year writing um, Dare to Dream Bigger, which was kind of summarizing the work I'd done for the previous decade. We'd been incredibly busy. I got to the printer deadline because it's a beautiful hardback book. So it has to go to print uh, quite a while before it can actually get to the shops. And the night before the final, final, final print deadline, it had been through the editor, beta readers, proofreaders, everything. I knew it was great. I'd had great feedback. I convinced myself, who am I to write this book? And I deleted every single available copy of the manuscript. Backup drives, Google Drive, you name it, it went. And you, it did went. It, you did it properly. You <laughs> properly deleted it. I probably deleted it. I am not publishing this book. 
And it's not because my techniques don't work. It's because I ignored the early warning signs for three months and I didn't deal with them and I pushed on through. And when you do that, what happens is it does come up to bite you on the backside because your brain does think this is an existential threat. Once I'd realized that's all that was going on, I'm using air quotes around the all, and I'd been banished to the tent in the garden. My family didn't want to talk to me much that night. Apparently, I wasn't pleasant. <laughs> I, uh, I did my stuff, got up the next morning, having cleared that fear and block, and I did manage to find one copy I'd missed that was only missing about a day's worth of edits, and we got it to print, and the book's fab. But it was because I'd ignored the inner critic mm. and pushed on through, and I hadn't dealt with who do I need to become to publish this book that it came up and it sabotaged in the most incredible way. And that was despite having sold hundreds of copies as pre-orders to my tribe. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story because we've probably all had, well, I wouldn't say similar stories. Maybe we haven't gone (laughs) quite as far as deleting absolutely everything, but uh, certainly I can identify with the self-sabotage thing. I nearly pressed the self-destruct button after my second course. I was wondering, you know, why was what the first course I did was so successful? The second one wasn't going to be. And thankfully, I've I've managed to get through that. But uh, I'm sure we've all got stories about those kinds of things. But yes, I thank you so much, Claire. It's been great to have you on the show. We're looking forward to having you on again. And uh, just remind us of your website again. It's clareyosa.com, C-L-A-R-E-J-O-S-A.com. That's brilliant. And I just realised I've mispronounced your name right at the beginning I, of the I'm show. I'm easy. Most people call me Clara Jose. Oh, well, there we go. So I, I got it nearly right, but uh, thank you for forgiving me. So thank you so much, everyone, for, for listening. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want to, to find out about today's show notes, then all you need to do is go to iag.me forward slash 11. And I'd love it if you could write a review. Just go to iTunes and search for The Confident Live Market podcast. But until next time, I hope you can level up your impact, authority and profits using Confident Live Video. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Confident Live Marketing Podcast with Ian Anderson Gray. Be sure to join the community at iag.me where you can continue to level up your impact, authority and profits through the power of live video. And until next time, toodaloo. Ian, you're rubbish. You're a total fraud. Daddy, what are you doing recording under the covers of your bed? Uh, well, I'm recording this week's podcast and it's a bit echoey in this house. Oh, well, okay. It seems a little strange, but I guess that's what you do.